You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Well, good morning and welcome to Riverview Church Online. We're also actually meeting live in person in the town hall as I speak right now. And I just want to say that if you've tried to book yourself a seat there but haven't been able to because of the restricted numbers we have to put in place, I'm really gutted for you. But next week we're also going to run two services, so there will definitely be space for you. And I just encourage you to come along because what a joy to be in the building together. Now, today, both online and in person, I'm launching a new series called Church Forward and this will be running at least for a few weeks in tandem with the I Am series that Margaret is currently taking us through, an amazing series. But Church Forward really is to ensure that we are match fit, like that we're aware and equipped and engaged, ready to stand and fight and then when we have done all things, to stand. And the real question I want to ask you this morning is this, are you battle ready or battle weary. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to be looking at that armory, our armory that God has provided because he's given us everything that we need. And we see some of that in Ephesians 6. But first, we're going to spend a few weeks looking at some of the enemy's uh, weapons and tactics and schemes so that we can be aware and alert because these things are designed to ensnare you. They're designed to distract and discourage and disempower and, if possible, destroy you completely. He wants to cut and mutilate you and the very image that you carry, the image of God, by attacking identity and character. And these schemes and weapons, this isn't exhaustive, this isn't all of them, it's just the ones that I'm going to focus on, are fear, doubt, indifference, weariness and pride. These are enemies of faith, not enemies of the faith, but they are enemies of our ability to have faith in Jesus. Now, you might be asking, why is sin not on this list? Why am I not going to look at that? Well, the answer is because it's it's all sin in, in an extreme. It's all sin. So before we get started, before we go further, I want to give you three definitions to kind of hold in your mind. Definition number one, what is sin? Sin is worshipping something other than the God who created you, right? Now, I'm, I'm not talking about singing here. Like Paul describes uh, offering our bodies as a living sacrifice to be a spiritual act of worship. So it's not really a sacrifice to get together with a group of people that you love to sing about a subject that you really love once or twice a week. I'm, I mean, I'm not saying that's wrong. It's necessary. It's a joyful thing. It's an overflow of our worship and it's important. But I think Paul has something much greater, much bigger in mind. So definition number two, what is worship? Worship is your attention. It's your primary focus. You know, the the object of your attention and focus is the thing that you are worshipping. You don't even have to like the thing that you worship. I mean, I've met hundreds of addicts who literally hate the thing that they are drawn to and they know that they are enslaved, but they cannot break out. And listen, everything almost can become an enslaving enemy when we focus on it inordinately. 
there's something always behind our behaviours and our thought processes, decisions and actions that is fueled by or provoked by the schemes, tactics and weapons of the enemy designed to distract and entice us away from God who, you know, all good things come from and into sin, which is like a counterfeit of his goodness. But listen, no weapon fashioned against you will prosper. And remember that repentance, I know we don't really like that word, but repentance is the doorway to transformation where we find that the victory is already won. And so definition number three before we get cracking, repentance. Repentance is a full attention shift. It's not just feeling sorry for ourselves. It's not just feeling ashamed or guilty or anything like that, but it is about turning fully and clinging to. So today, let's take a, a little look, let's dive into one of the first kind of schemes, weapons, tactics that I've identified that the enemy uses to distract us from God, and that is fear. Now, there's a reason why I've been keeping this series until today, and that's because where I'm preaching probably right at this moment in the town hall above my head will be the town's coat of arms. And on that is two Latin words, uh, sene or sine meto, and that means without fear. It's the town motto. Look, nothing will hinder this church and its kingdom advance more than fear. And I'll explain what I mean a bit. And the thing is that at Jesus's name, strongholds will fall, darkness will hide, chains will be broken, the enemy's schemes will be shattered. None of those things can stand in Jesus's presence. But how will people know if we don't reveal, if we're too afraid to reveal? How will they hear if we're too afraid to speak? Or how will they see if we are too afraid to demonstrate Jesus in our lives? So we need to progress together as a church without fear. I mean, come on, church in Bowness, it is literally written into our history. It's engraved upon our buildings and on our signposts without fear. Now, how does the enemy use fear as a weapon, as a scheme against you? Well, he knows that if fear is big in our focus, then God becomes small in our focus. And that is his objective. Make God small in your focus so that you are worshipping something else. I mean, fear, it's a big deal, right? We, we all struggle with it in some sense, and, and nothing is likely to hinder you more in your God-given calling, your potential, your gifting, and your capacity than fear. It is literally like a barrier across the road. It stops us in our tracks, and it fills us with the desire to turn and run or hide under the covers or close up and be silent. And I'm not going to take a massive lengthy dive into the psychology of fear this morning. I'm not going to spend ages preaching about different phobias and things like that. I'm sure that you've heard those kind of messages a thousand times before, but there's something I want to quickly clarify, and that is that there is a difference between fear and concern, between being troubled in spirit and being fearful in spirit. A great difference between those two things. You see, Jesus was troubled and we see that in John 12. I'm not going to say much about that because I'm, I'm literally speaking about that on Tuesday night. 
but actually the word troubled there means disturbed or stirred up. And, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that to the extreme, to the point where Jesus um, was sweating and blood, like his tiny blood vessels burst as he was so anguished and blood mixed with his sweat out of his pores. I mean, nobody has ever experienced the kind of anguish uh, to the level that Jesus did right there and then, like never, because it wasn't just that he was facing a brutal, painful, humiliating death, and he knew it. It was also that he was bearing the load of the entirety of humanity on his shoulders, such a load. No one has ever borne it. No other person could ever bear it. No other person will ever need to bear it because he bore it. Now, his focus in that moment of anguish remained on the Father, obedient to death. He didn't flinch from his mission. So when Jesus says, do not fear, and we see the Old Testament full of examples where God says, do not fear, we'll look at one of those in a minute. Know that there's a big difference between being troubled and being full of fear. And it's how it affects our focus, our attention and our reactions and responses that defines whether we're troubled or whether we are racked with fear. You see, the same word troubled is used to describe what the disciples felt when they saw Jesus walking across the water. But there in Matthew, that's translated as terrified. It's the same word, but we translate it differently. They're terrified. And we know that they're terrified because we also see a second word in the very next verse where Jesus says, don't be afraid. And the word he uses is from the root of the word that we get phobia from. So they are terrified to the point that it becomes like a tunnel vision focus. And Jesus sort of disappears from their focus because they're so petrified by what they think they're seeing in front of them. And Jesus is saying, do not let fear steal your focus from me. Now, fear is sometimes useful. We know this, right? Okay, if you walk into a room and there's like a hungry tiger in the room, well, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to go in, like sit down, and crack open a beer and put my feet up. I mean, that would be stupidity. So I'm going to leave probably quite hastily. Fear is a gift. It's a good gifted resource, a good tool that God's given us to help us survive physically. But like all gifts, all good gifts, it turns problematic if it becomes our consuming focus, if it steals our attention away from God. And now God doesn't simply say, like, fear not, like we can go, oh, okay, then I'll stop doing that. He also, as well as telling us to fear not, tells us what not, how not, and why not to fear. So we're going to have a quick look at Isaiah 43, just three short verses here. Isaiah 43, verse 1 to 3. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. 
Now, just before I go further, notice the first two words of that passage, but now. So he's continuing a thought. It's important to note what has just literally been spoken before these verses I just read to you back in Isaiah 42, because this is exile time. Israel hadn't listened, they hadn't obeyed, they hadn't given God their full attention, and now they're being plundered and looted and facing exile, facing being taken away. And in 20, verse 24 of 42, it says, for they would not follow his ways, they did not obey his law. Now, you may well think well, that's a bit tyrannical of God, isn't it? Like, you don't do what I say, and so I'm going to punish you. Well, not so. God is not a tyrant. Look, the fall of Israel is not God's failure. It's theirs. The, the real issue is disobedience. It's failure to trust him alone. It is failure to focus their attention upon him. You see, God is the very sustainer of life and the provider of all good things. Everything you could possibly want or need is found in him. Our most healthy and happy existence, our deepest fulfilment, our truest identity, our greatest experience of life is all found in him. And therefore, to walk away from that, to like turn in another direction and shift our focus elsewhere is bonkers. It's like leaving a land that is perfectly balanced and beautiful and plentiful, but happens to belong to this other king in search of our own land where we can be king, even if the land itself is just utterly rubbish and rotting. Because we want to be in control. We want to be the lord and the captain and everything like that. Now, the thing is, we could no more blame God for the consequence of our actions and our sin than we could blame him for a lack of oxygen if we held our breath. Now, Timothy Keller says often that God ultimately will give you what you want, what you chase, what you desire for all of eternity. And now you know that everything that the world has for you to experience is ultimately unsatisfactory. That's why people always want more. No matter how much they have, they strive for more, more money, more popularity, status, whatever it is. And now imagine an eternity where you are always painfully craving that which you can never, ever hope to have. You know, God's goodness is kind of like a, a rapid tide. He wants us to be moved in the right direction by that tide. And discipline occurs when we try to swim against the tide. It literally wants to correct, seeks to correct our course. And so you can swim with the tide of God's goodness and enjoy it. Like Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Or we can try to stubbornly swim against it, where we will continue to exhaust ourselves, discourage ourselves and ultimately drown. And then we come to Isaiah 43 in this story and their fear here comes from the knowledge of what they're facing and what they deserve that God has just completely outlined. They are beyond self-remedy. They need discipline which is painful but loving. They need someone to correct their course and save them. And the incredible thing is that God removes the fear replacing it with reassurance of restoration, totally unmerited and undeserved rescue. 
So let's briefly look into these things, waters, rivers and fire, as though we're looking through a window into the very things that may incite fear into our hearts. Because waters overwhelm us, and that's the picture we see here, and fire consumes are we not often afraid of that which will overwhelm us? We don't want to feel overwhelmed or that which will threaten to destroy or consume us. Of course we are. But also bear in mind that in this context, all of the following that we're going to look at now has to do with discipline. Isaiah 8, 7 says, Therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty flood waters. You know, the thing is, we have a low view of discipline, don't we? I mean, who of you, myself included, who enjoys discipline, really? But discipline is a loving act. That is correction when we're heading in the wrong direction and, and purification when we choose the wrong things that are going to harm us. Discipline is seeking to turn us away from the road that leads to ultimate death and the destruction of the soul and it always leads us into a wide open space of abundance. That's what discipline does. Psalm 66, 12 says, you let people ride over our heads. I mean, that sounds pretty horrific. We went through fire and water, but you brought us into a place of abundance. So the waters the word could mean deep floodwaters. You know, they're things, waters that are not where they're meant to be. They're like out of place. So we're talking about disasters. We're talking about major disruption. We're talking about sorrow. We're talking about loss. Now, don't we fear the unknown but plausible or even certain in our lives? And we're not talking about annoyances like a flat tyre when you can't find a tyre iron or, you know, that moment when you're in a real rush, but you pick the wrong cue at Lidl's and it's so frustrating. What I'm talking about is life-altering calamity, the sudden job loss, unexpected hardships, broken relationships, betrayal, pending peril, the loss of security, or the loss of loved ones. I mean, that's what the waters kind of are. And it could also be an allusion to the Red, uh, Red Sea, that that massive closed door, that great barrier behind them, death pursuing them, and in front of them, on an opposite shore, far off in the distance, the promise of life, but the great chasm in between. But the thing is, God is with them, the great gulf divider, the great way maker. What seems blocked off to you? You may feel trapped that there are no exits, that inevitability is snapping at your heels. Well, he promises, I will be with you. He can make a way even where it seems implausible or even impossible. And then we come to the rivers and the phrase evokes the idea of the possibility of like being swept away. You know, the, the great revealer of our insufficiency and our weaknesses and oh, how we fear revealing our weaknesses. Now, look, I'm not totally stupid, don't post your comments on a postcard, but I'm not totally stupid. But I, I, I mean, I'm not going to try swimming the fourth river in full like tidal flow. But if I saw a few inches of water fast flowing down the wind, which is a street in Bowness, I'm pretty sure that I'd be dumb enough to give that a go, particularly if I was egged on or if there was kind of some sort of social pressure. 
Now, apparently, though, it only takes a few inches of fast flowing water to take a person fully off their feet. But we hate to admit that we're not strong enough to stand in the flow. How we despise to admit that we need help, that we are not enough. I mean, I'm not enough. And at school, I used to find it easier to tell a teacher to like jog on than to admit to them that I didn't do my homework because I don't understand. Look, I don't have to be sufficient because he is sufficient. I'm not enough, Lord, unless you come. But this, the rivers could also be an allusion to the Jordan River in Joshua 3, which was in full flood when they were commanded, when they were told to cross over it. But as they followed God's command, God held up the waters so that they wouldn't be swept away. Now, often the crossing of the Jordan River into that promised land is related to our crossing from this life and into eternity through our physical death. That great river that we will all face and that men of us drastically fear and there he says they will not sweep over you and then we come to the fire now fire can be a total destroyer right i mean hot enough it consumes pretty much everything don't we fear that Peter talks about painful, fiery trials of persecution and grief and consequences and kind of like a great furnace. But this furnace is also used to purify, to burn off wrong things and harden and beautify right things like purifying gold or silver. And it was through a furnace that three God-focused people were proven and strengthened, whereas the gods that took them in there, focused on the orders of another type of king, were consumed in that same moment. God is a consuming fire. Sin is burned off in his presence. How can we, sinful people, even bear it? Well, we can't. And yet he says, you will not be burned. You know, the incredible thing is that all of these things for Israel, they have brought upon their own heads. And yet God still says, I will be with you. You will not be overwhelmed. You will not be burned. How so? Well, he burned our sinful garments off of a sinless man's back on our behalf. Christ our hope in life and death, wore our filthy clothes into that furnace and came out to hand us clothes of righteousness purified in that terrible fire. He knew the overwhelming waters of sorrow and is acquainted with all of our deepest grief. He stared into the torrent and he crossed that river on our behalf. And now he holds up the waters so that in our crossing, he promises, I will be with you and you will not be swept away. Why would God do that for them or for us who have so often rebelled, so prone to wander, so easily led astray? Well, the answer is also the key for our freedom from fear's grip. You are created and formed and redeemed and called and owned. 
You were created and formed by God intentionally, that there's purpose in your existence. You were made for a reason. And your parents may have told you that you were an accident. You certainly were not. But your existence wasn't an accident to God. He deliberately formed you. Your mother and father didn't form you. In fact, when you think about it, they had very little say in the matter at all. A parent can't decide the colour of your hair or your eyes. A parent can't choose what tastes please or displease your taste buds. A parent can't choose your personality or your character, even though they might try to shape it um, in the future. He formed you. He made you and God values what he has made, particularly those made in his image. There is no animal, no creature or even angel that is created in his image other than humans. Now, I lived on a farm when I was a kid and we had a golden rule. Never name an animal that you intend to eat because it's impossible to eat fluffy bundles. You know, you have value because God has named you and calls you by that name. There is massive significance in that fact. You don't have value because you're a living legend, but because he values you. You're loved. You are cherished. You can neither increase nor decrease the value that he places on you. But I tell you what, he gave his only begotten son. He came to reclaim and rescue and restore that which he created and formed and values, but which was broken by sin. The focus is on God's intention to rescue. And that is what it means to be redeemed. The Old Testament picture is of a a, a relative redeeming their family, rescuing, sheltering, providing for them. And this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and therefore is applicable to you too. And now, believer, he says to you, you are mine. You may be a screw-up, you may feel like you're a screw-up, but he delights in you. He calls you his. You are precious in his sight. You are valuable. So as I wrap up, how do I deal with my fear? Well, I have to repent of it. Look, remember, this isn't feeling bad about it or adding guilt to guilt or trying to defeat it by, I must be more brave, I must try harder, be more resourceful or decisive. You cannot conquer fear by focusing on it, but by focusing away from it, turn your eyes towards Jesus. He has broken every chain, so turn. Turn your focus and attention fully to him and he will heal you. He will bind up the bruises of his people and heal their wounds. Do not fear, he says, because my promise is greater than your greatest and most imaginative fears. My promise is that I, the Holy One of Israel, will be with you in everything, every trial, every circumstance, whether Satan flung it at you or you swam into it willingly. And even if you face the fullness of discipline, I will keep you and purify you within it. I am with you. It is I who save. Not money, security, safety or relationships or any other thing like logic or common sense. I am with you. Your ultimate identity will not be harmed despite the opinions and distortions of society. And even if something kills your body, you still have life. 
I'm really bringing this into land. He promises to be with you. He will take the sting. He will remove the burn even as you feel the heat. And even if he doesn't seem to do it in the moment, he will still preserve your eternity. So as I close, look, fear is hurting you more than the thing that you fear, always. Because even if the thing that you fear is painful, imminent, very real and very scary, fearing it means that you're focused on your emotional response to it and on the thing itself, which in turn means that you have little or no capacity to focus on or trust in the one who has redeemed you and called you and holds you who can and will save you and your very soul from the fowler's snare. So next week, I'm going to pause. We're going to sidestep to one of our most feared and universal, inevitable enemies, death itself. But we're going to celebrate that even death is defeated. And therefore, whom shall I fear? Amen. Amen.